welcome to Leading Edge Love Love Radio. Radio. Whoops. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And today I'm really excited to have a very interesting guest. Andre Shakti is a journalist, educator, performer, activist, and she also writes a column, an advice column, for non-monogamous people called I Am Polly and So Can You. And she writes about destigmatizing sex workers and their clients and also normalizing alternative desires, which I want to hear more about that. <laughs> so welcome so much to the show, Andre. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So maybe we can start with uh, tell me a little bit about your personal history with non-monogamy. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm one of those um, kind of unicorns uh, who has known that she's been polyamorous for a really long time. Um, I definitely, uh, I'm queer identified now, but I mostly dated men in um, kind of my early adolescence into my college years. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, um, I ended up cheating on almost every boyfriend that I had in high school, uh, despite the fact that uh, I got really lucky and I lucked out and had a lot of really wonderful uh, boyfriends. I didn't really have any bad experiences. And I couldn't really figure it out. Um, I had these really lovely relationships and it would just always feel like they weren't enough. Kind of like um, I'm out here on the West Coast and I was just talking to somebody recently about how vegan food, uh, you can eat so much of it, but it never really makes you feel full. And that um, that is a very apt metaphor for uh, for how I was feeling most of um, my like kind of formative relationship years. As I was interacting with lots of people, I you know felt very um, almost precociously sexually empowered, um, and I've always been a pretty confident, outgoing person. But uh, I would always find myself feeling like something was lacking, like I needed more. Um, and so I'd end up having, you know, these multiple relationships at the same time. And, uh, I had a little bit of guilt about them, but I also always thought, you know, this is, this is how I need to do relationships for better or for worse. Apparently I can't be happy unless I'm, you know, I have these different dynamics all going on at the same time and I must just be totally broken. And I don't know if I'll ever, you know, get married or find somebody who will want to like, spend a long-term relationship with me, but like, this is, this is kind of what I'm stuck with. And I kind of realized that at a really early age. Um, mm-hmm. And then when I got to college, I had a really lovely professor. I was uh, uh, one of the programs I uh, did in my undergraduate studies was I, uh, I had an LGBT studies minor and my, um, mm-hmm. my, one of my professors um, was the first to introduce the idea of ethical non-monogamy to me. I think I was about 19 and I remember just that it's just that fireworks feeling where like everything just comes into place and aligns perfectly. And I was just like, Oh my God, like there are other people out there like me there, you know, there are more moral and ethical ways to do what I've essentially been doing for the past, you know, six or seven years at that point. And so um, I just gobbled up any information about it that I could. And then pretty soon I just started identifying as non-monogamous and kind of the rest is history. (laughs) Nice. 
Well, thank you so much for that story. There there's several things you said I want to unpack here. You're very good with words, the Polly Pundit. <laughs> um, so <laughs> when you, you. talked when you talked about being precociously sexually empowered, um, can you tell me a little bit more about how that showed up? Sure. Um, so I grew up in a really small town in southern New Jersey in a farming community. And um, even though my parents weren't terribly religious, um, it still was kind of a moderate to conservative-leaning household. And uh, my little sister and I never really got any – we never got any sex information at all. We weren't getting it in the home. Uh, my parents were just kind of like – ignoring talking about it, um, maybe we won't ask if they don't say anything kind of thing. Uh, and then my high school and middle school, actually, they, there were no sexual health education programs to speak of. There wasn't even like a, you know, a, an old gym teacher, you know, saddled with that responsibility who's telling you that like gay people get AIDS and like teaching you how to put candy <laughs> condoms on bananas. Like we didn't even have that. <laughs> and I, I actually spent a lot of time in high school um, petitioning our local school board and getting uh, close to 2,000 signatures um, to try and implement a sexual health education program um, in the school. And I couldn't really tell you why. <laughs> I couldn't tell you, like, where this came from. I didn't have any, like, progressive uh, or liberal influences in my life. Um, I recall from a personal level, you know, masturbating very early on when I was a child um, and you know, doing so very consciously, like knowing that I was, what I was doing was pleasuring myself. Um, mm -hmm. I sought porn and erotica out at a really young age, maybe like 11, 12 years old um, via the, the family computer. Um, and I had actually a, a many, even though I wasn't out myself, I had many uh, gay male friends um, in my uh, in middle school and high school, and they were um, much, typically much more sexually precocious and than my straight peers, and they were doing a lot of, you know, meeting guys in chat rooms, and because um, that's the way it was back then, and uh, mm -hmm. and I would, I, it actually set me up to be a sex worker really well because I would be like their check-in person, so they'd be going to meet some mm -hmm. like 25 year old, you know, two towns over, and I'd be set, I'd be the only person who like knew, you know, where they were going, what time they were supposed to be back, you know, who this guy was, like his internet handle, et cetera, et cetera. And that's mm -hmm. what sex workers do um, in terms of checking right. and screening. So, um, but yeah, I just never had any shame about any of it. I became sexually active when I was 13. Um, it was a very uh, intentional and conscious decision on my part. And um, I remember dragging my boyfriend when I was 16 in front of my parents to tell them that we were having sex and that I needed my mother to take me to her gynecologist so I can get on birth control and like like I just mm -hmm. have always um I, it's always been really uh really easy for me to talk about sex to um think about you know pleasuring myself and experimenting with other people um and I kind of just became this like little micro hub of information for my friends when I was growing up. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, it all, it all like makes very logical sense for who I am now. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, I related to your story about before you understood there was such a thing as non-monogamy that you would just end up cheating on your boyfriends all the time. And it, it popped into my mind 
when I was about 16 or 17, I was working in a pizza restaurant and I had a little thing, a kind of flirtation going on with every single guy that worked there, but not, none of them knew that I was also had a thing with the other one. <laughs> so I didn't know. Right. Yeah. I, like they so never just, knew about each other. <laughs> yeah. And I just judged myself so harshly that I was such a slut, you know, <laughs> but, um, then we kind of learned that, Oh, that's just an orientation and it's okay. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and then you also talked about the first thing you said was you're sort of a unicorn. So uh, I think a lot of my listeners are new to polyamory, new to open relationship. Can you explain what you mean by that term? Oh, sure. So I actually, I actually meant it just to say like, um, I, I'm unusual or unique, um, but mm-hmm. the word unicorn is also um, used in the non-monogamy community to describe um, generally a female-identified uh, person that a couple might seek out to bring into their relationship, either for just mm-hmm. a fun one-off threesome or for something that's like more consistent and maybe could turn into a triad. And there's a mm-hmm. a joke in the poly community that unicorns are, they're called unicorns because they're very hard to find. It's very difficult to find mm-hmm. that, that one magical unicorn to fit into your, mm-hmm. uh, your relationship. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well said. Um, but you didn't mean that. You just meant that more you're kind of a rare bird. Yeah, I mean, technically I'm both. <laughs> uh, technically uh-huh. I'm a professional unicorn as well as definitely being a rare bird. <laughs> um, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I do professional. Um, I don't really do a whole lot of, uh, you know, stereotypical what would be referred to as like full service work as a sex worker. But I do a lot of um, work with couples, especially around mm-hmm. uh um, especially around pegging, actually. I work a lot with heterosexual couples who really want, uh, where the men really want to explore their prostate for the first time and the women don't have a lot of confidence in, uh, in their ability to do that. So um, I, mm. I play unicorn um, very well <laughs> professionally. Mm-hmm. Got it. Great. That sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then you also said that you're queer identified. Can you um, elaborate on that a little bit for people who might not even understand what the word queer actually means? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, as many folks, particularly folks like over the age of 40, um, listening to this podcast will will note and, you know, remember queer was historically used as a derogatory tar- term to refer to LGBT people. Uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people. The acronym is is now much longer, but I will spare all of your listeners that. Um, (laughs) So so, um, much like uh, the word fag in the uh, gay male community, much like um, the, you know, the N-word in the African-American community, um, it's one of those words that's been reclaimed by uh, the community Mm -hmm. as as time has gone on. And now um, it it is used both as an umbrella term to refer to the, it, instead of saying the LGBT community, you can say the queer community and it kind of acts as this umbrella that all the identities and orientations fall under. Um, or mm-hmm. you can identify as queer and that can be your, uh, your sexual orientation, just like somebody identifies as gay or straight or bisexual. And it mm-hmm. means a few different things for different people. For me personally, it means that um I am much more attracted to and intrigued by what's between somebody's ears than what's between somebody's legs. So I have Mm -hmm. 
the potential to be attracted to just about any gender identity or sexual orientation. Doesn't mean that I'm attracted mm-hmm. to everyone. <laughs> just means that I have mm-hmm. um, much more potential to be. Wonderful. You're so well-spoken. You're just so great. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Uh, I can tell that you've thought about these concepts a lot and probably written about a lot of them as well. I just moved. Okay, Sorry, I just so moved. Um, I had a. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, tell me a little bit about the relationship modeling that you received growing up and how it might have influenced your own desires and your own experiences. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I'm always a little hesitant to. Um, I want to first make the kind of the PSA that. Um, you know, the way that I think the way that relationships are modeled for us when we're when we're young and we're in those formative years where we're starting to, you know, reach out and build our own relationships with people, our own romantic relationships. I think that's really um, I think it's really crucial and it can it can speak to um, a lot of our own patterns that we end up developing. But, um, you know, there's kind of a, a stereotype, unfortunately, um, with non-monogamous folks as there is with, you know, queer individuals, as there is with sex workers, as there is with so many different marginalized communities that, um, you know, we're this way because we came from, quote, broken homes. You know, we came from Mm -hmm. parents or families who uh, were, you know, at the extreme level abusive, um, at the the lower level, you know, um, uh, negligent or... um, Mm -hmm or distant, you know? Uh, so I definitely mm-hmm. want to, want to say, while that can influence how somebody does relationships, it definitely is not a surefire indicator. Um, so I want to blanket statement that, um, but I did grow up in a single parent home. Uh, my mother was a, um, is a very strong independent woman that I ended up modeling a lot of my own behaviors after. And my, you know, my sister and I, kind of raised ourselves a little bit. My mom uh, worked, you know, full hours, about an hour and a half commute away. So we didn't see her all that often. And, um, you know, she didn't really, she didn't really date all that much. Um, So there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, romance. Um, You know, I grew up um, in a family that while it became clearer and clearer to me as I got older, that they did value more traditional heteronormative ways of, of looking at relationships. Um, you know, my parents uh, divorced at a very, uh, when I was very young and neither one of them uh, ever remarried. And um, both of them, I never really saw affection being modeled um, in the family environment. And a really interesting, like, non-relationship way that ended up, um, you know, uh, appearing in my adult life is that I actually can't share a bed with anyone who I'm not sexually involved with um, because mm-hmm. I, growing up, um, my family, we weren't, we weren't huggers, we weren't handholders, uh, we didn't share sleeping uh, areas. We, um, it wasn't like a warm, fuzzy environment. Um, so mm-hmm. I associate like pretty much every kind of intimacy with, um, 
what you share and display and save for partnerships. Um, so even mm-hmm. to, to this day, it's even though like my sister and I have a great relationship. I, it's very hard for me to say I love you to my sister because it just mm-hmm. wasn't uh, a part of my upbringing. However, it's extremely easy for me to say I love you to my friends, to my partners, to uh, my metamors, my partner's partners. Um, you know, intimate relationships have always been much, come much easier to me than family relationships, you know, and I can definitely mm-hmm. look back and see how that happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you. Interesting. And how would you say uh, being a sex worker has impacted your personal sex life? Oh, um, well, uh, I definitely used to identify. Uh, so I came out as queer when I was around 19 or 20, around my junior year of college. And, um, you know, in the queer community, um, this kind of started off in the gay male community. People tend to identify uh, as a top or as a bottom or as a switch. Um, and this has then kind of been appropriated by the, the kink and BDSM communities. And when I uh, I moved to California about four years ago from uh, Baltimore, where I went to college, and when I moved out to California, um, I identified as a bottom. Um, my relationships were generally with people who were more dominant than me, um, not personality-wise, but in the in the bedroom-wise, in uh, into right. the dynamics. And uh, this is a very comfortable place for me to be. And I've been in the sex industry for 10 years. So I was in sex industry through college. I was in sex industry when I moved out to California. And I'm, I'm still doing it. And I mostly do a combination of uh, stripping, uh, professional domination work, and porn. And um, what I tend to get booked for, and I found this out very quickly uh, when, I, when I entered the porn industry and I entered um, – I started uh, doing domination work is folks um, folks were booking me to be dominant. Uh, people really w- were kind of pigeonholing me and wanting me to be more dominant. I was getting put in, you know, lesbian scenes, for example, with very, very submissive women and, uh, and being asked to do a dominant role. Um, and kind of through the sex industry, through kind of acquiring skills and techniques to use, you know, on set or with my clients, through acquiring, um, you know, lots of gear and new toys, uh, and also through kind of being, I want to say use forced very loosely, but, um, you know, I was enthusiastically consenting to all of this, but by being asked and then consenting to, uh, to be a dominant, have a dominant role in a, in a porn scene, for example, that put me in a position where I got to explore the other side of things and I got to get paid for it on top of that. So that was great. Mm-hmm. And the more that I did it for work, um, the more I it kind of became part of my identity to the point where now, again, four years after I've moved to California and really like dived into the sex industry, um, I identify as a top. Um, and my sexual dynamic has completely changed. Um, I've like traversed the entire spectrum and I'm sure it will continue to, you know, uh, wobble and go back and forth and fluctuate throughout my life. But um, it's been really interesting to see that transformation. Mm-hmm. Wow. And does that impact the advice that you give your clients? Um, it definitely does in that a lot of people are worried that, um, let's say uh, I get a lot of 
questions about sexual desire and sexual desire fluctuating, whether someone is writing into me because they're experiencing relationship issues due to their own fluctuating desires or their partner has expressed fluctuating desires and they're not quite sure, you know, what to do with that or how to, um, how to work with that, uh, or they're internalizing it and thinking it's their fault. Um, as someone whose sexual desires have fluctuated in the extremes, I would say over the past, you know, how, God, how long, let's do some math, 15 years I've been sexually active at this point. Um, I feel very confident, you know, telling people, listen, there are a variety of factors that can influence, um, you know, your sexual desire, your partner's sexual desire. These can be, you know, on a macro level, like what's going on in the world, what's going on in the country, especially now. <laughs> you know, this can be on mm-hmm. a more micro level. Um, maybe, you know, something's happening with their identity or their orientation. Maybe they, um, you know, uh, recently went through a major life change, a tra- I, what I call a traumatic life event. You know, they went through a move. They went through the death of a parent. They're feeling destabilized. Um, you know, maybe they, uh, maybe they're on hormones or they're on a medication where their sexual, um, you know, their sex drive was really high before and now it's, it's dropped really low and they're, you know, mm-hmm. they're feeling very self-conscious about that. So I've, I've been in pretty much all of those spots. Um, I'm younger, but I, I have had a host of, uh, unfortunate chronic health issues um, that have also caused my sexual desire to fluctuate. So um, that's something that I am very used to counseling folks about. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, And when you get older, you'll be able to counsel people on the postmenopausal drop in sex drive too for a lot of women. (laughs) I know I get questions like that. um, uh, Not, not frequently, but once in a while. And those are the ones that I have to kind of outsource to other, um, to other (laughs) educators that are, that are both older and more experienced than I am for their input because uh because right. I'm, I'm very, if there's anything I am, it's, I'm very upfront about not knowing something. I think that's really mm-hmm. important. So, yeah, yeah. And you are, you have, you have enough that you, that you're knowledgeable about and, and very good at. So um very awed by the knowledge that you do have. <laughs> um, so, so let's stay on the topic of desires. We talked about how you're devoted to normalizing alternative desires. So what do you mean by alternative desires? Absolutely. Um, So a lot of the work that I do around that um, is actually, actually happens in my, uh, in my private client base as a, as a pro dom Um, through my non-monogamy coaching. Not a whole lot of folks are, uh, people don't generally come to me from like point A. It's not like, um, let's see, they woke up one morning and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm not monogamous. You know, I feel so ashamed of my desires. I need to immediately seek out a non-monogamy coach. I don't really get a lot of those folks. Um, but what I do get are a lot of uh, dominatrix clients who are coming to me, um, you know, not just to be strung up from the rafters and beaten with a, a reed and made to call me mommy, but um, they're coming <laughs> in with uh, – you know, they're coming in with a lot of shame. Um, one of the things that I advertise very prominently um, on my online ads is that I am uh, skilled with working with novices and amateurs um, around uh, kink and fetish and BDSM. 
And so I get a lot of men mostly um, between the ages of, I would say, 35 and 65 who uh, generally are very successful in their everyday lives, um, to, but so successful oftentimes that they've neglected, um, you know, their, their sexual desires, their romantic needs, um, and they, it all kind of catches up to them in this big wave and they decide to finally do something about it. And a lot of times these are men who have desires that um, they have been told either directly, maybe by past partners or family members who have caught them in the act or indirectly by, you know, the messages that our society is constantly sending us on a daily basis that their, their attractions, their desires, their needs are, um, you know, they're alien, they're foreign, they're deviant. Um, they are, you know, sometimes criminal, um, and uh, and this has even caused many of them to, you know, seek out uh, mental health services when they really don't need them. <laughs> um, it's caused mm-hmm. many of them to go without sex for a very long time or to commit to sexual relationships that they're not satisfied in um, that end up, of course, blowing up, you know, years into it. Um, mm-hmm. So really, you know, so much of my work um, is is so much of my work is counseling and coaching, whether or not it's overtly advertised that way. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the time, right. I'm not only showing a man how to simulate his prostate for the first time, but I'm spending a lot of time, um, you know, talking through why he has never felt free enough to explore his own ass, what, you know, what messages he's gotten about what that might mean, you know, in big air quotations about his sexuality mm-hmm. um, and just really working through the stigma and the shame because that's as powerful as, you know, discovering new physical sensations, perhaps even more so. Great. Thank you. So besides prostate stimulation, what are some of the other alternative desires that you see that people are shame, feeling shame about? Oh, the one that always like makes me just want to squeeze them is uh, <laughs> like like to hug them close to me um, is when the uh, the foot fetishists come in and they're so they're so like um, preoccupied with you know how how disgusting their fetish is and uh, and they're so embarrassed by it and on, on like the totem of kink foot fetish is like the lowest thing you can possibly have. And that's what I tell them. I'm like, okay, so contextually speaking, you barely, barely qualify as being in the king community. Um, (laughs) So, you know, it could be anything from a a preoccupation with a a body part that isn't, you know, um, that society tells us is unattractive uh you know for example if a man is looking at a woman you know society tells us that desiring that woman's face or that woman's breast or that woman's ass uh or that woman's legs all of those are acceptable parts of uh someone's body to desire um if but however if a man looks at a woman and of course i'm being very heteronormative here but again i'm kind of talking for my client base um but if the man looks at a woman and, and, you know, thinks to himself, oh, my gosh, I wonder what her armpits would smell like. Now, that is considered a deviant sexual desire. Um, so it could be anything mm-hmm. as kind of innocuous as um, desiring a, an unusual or atypical body part um, to 
you know, something like bondage to um, something like uh, someone who's very much into role play scenarios um, in the bedroom, uh, usually involving power dynamics, um, and usually they want to be uh, dominated or they want to be overtaken um, in some kind of power dynamic uh, influence scene. Um, it could be a you know a predilection towards a particular material. There are lots of folks who are very much into leather, who are very much into latex um, and other materials uh, that are very um, are much more than like say me me. Uh, enjoying wearing a sequin dress. You know, I'm like, oh, it's a nice sequin dress. I'll look really good in that. These are people who um, get aroused at the thought of, you know, the smell or the sensation of leather or latex, et cetera. And it's a very, you know, intricate part of their sexual expression. And so those are just some examples of uh, kind of what would be considered uh, atypical uh, sexual desires. Well, that was a great rundown. Thank you. If you're just joining us now, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com, and we're speaking with Andre Shakti. We're talking right now about how devoted she is to normalizing alternative desires. So when you talk to your clients, um, my question is, do the married men um, hide these alternative desires from their wives easily? Usually, yes. Um, I will say that I, I, you know, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, so things are a little, a little more liberal out here than in the rest of the country, and so because of that, um, you know, that permeates even you know straight relationships and marriages, and because of that, I, I'm very thrilled to see more wives and girlfriends um, opening up uh, to their partners and vice versa about, you know, what they're, they really want, what they're really desiring. So a lot of times it is possible to get the girlfriends or wives um, involved. And a lot of times I am seeing men who don't identify purely as straight. Um, I'm seeing men who identify as bisexual um, or once in a while even pansexual or queer. And um, I would say that's a little unusual, and that's definitely because of the the area that I live in. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm still, you know, most of the work that I do is around, um, you know, prostate exploration and pegging and strap-on play, as well as uh, fetish wrestling. Um, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I uh, there's a, a niche market of the domination um, sector called fetish wrestling, and it's basically exactly what it sounds like. It's like ladies in, in uh, singlets and bikinis just like beating the crap out of men on a wrestling mat. So <laughs> um, those are like the two things that I specialize in and then I kind of dabble in other stuff. Um, and I would say that, um, you know, the pegging uh, and the strap-on play, um, it's hard for a lot of women to um, – lot of you know straight identified women to wrap their heads around you know our our society does unfortunately still tell us that if a man desires anal stimulation or anal penetration that that is an inherently uh, homosexual um, desire and what I repeatedly Mm -hmm. try and you know tell my clients and their partners if I have the opportunity to talk to them is that it's not, you know, what is being done to you that determines your sexual orientation. It is who is doing it. Um, so 
kind of working from that framework, um, I have been able to, uh, I guess, graduate some of my clients um, to uh, to them feeling comfortable enough to have that first conversation with their wives or girlfriends where they were too scared to do it before. Um, again, I, I work with a lot of couples, um, sometimes couples where I've been seeing the man independently first, and sometimes just the couple finds me or the woman finds me and books me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it makes, it makes me sad. Um, and it is mostly men that I will say that are afraid to talk to their wives or their girlfriends about it. I hear less horror stories about men attempting to do it. And then the girlfriends or wives like freak out. It's more like they get really in their heads about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I work with couples in long-term marriages and relationships who want to open their marriage because there's an imbalance of desire or they, um, they're they both feeling disinterested in, in their sexual relationship, but they don't want to break up. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering what you do if you get men who are coming to see a sex worker instead of dealing with that with their wife. Do you think there's any hope for a relationship uh, when the man is seeing a sex worker and not telling his wife, do you ever, have you had any success with um, helping a couple to be honest about that and open their relationship in that way so that he can see a sex worker without having to lie about it? Oh, I always tell them that. I mean, a lot of them are, Mm -hmm. you know, some of them are uh, very um, open that they have, you know, a wife or a girlfriend and some of them, you know, just don't say anything to me about it. And I just don't ask. And oftentimes there's a wedding ring on the finger. Um, But if they basically, uh, when my clients come in, um, we have, and this, again, this is a, a domination client, not a coaching, you know, a, a non-monogamy coaching client. When a domination client mm-hmm. comes in, we've already exchanged some emails. I already have a, a loose idea of what um, they're looking for. We've negotiated, you know, logistics and, and monetary rates. But I actually leave a uh, 10 to 15-minute uh, extra window um, ahead of all of my sessions uh, that's reserved just for sitting down and talking. And then I reserve mm-hmm. a 10-minute window at the end of my session just for sitting down, kind of collecting our things, starting to clean up, but also talking. And oftentimes mm-hmm. during those conversations, I'm, you know, reviewing what we discussed in the emails, but I'm also going a little bit further. And um, if I feel like or I kind of sense like they would be open to talking about their personal relationships, then I'll start asking questions about it. Um, and usually mm-hmm. after we've done the scene uh, or the session, I will uh, sometimes go a little bit further and ask, you know, have you ever thought about having this conversation with your wife or girlfriend? And, you know, mm-hmm. then they'll, they'll tell me what their experience has been. And then I'll, you know, kind of remind them, well, you know, like I do see couples and I would love to, you know, I always encourage my clients to talk, um, to be honest about their desires for the sustainability of the, the relationship um, I'm like, but if you feel like you still are too, uh, you know, embarrassed or hesitant to do that by yourself, then I can help facilitate a supported conversation for you and or I can physically work with you and your um, your significant other 
in, ter- in terms of kind of giving them more information about the fetish, um, you know, showing them practically, uh, you know, what toys to buy, like, you know, what porn they can maybe look at to get an idea of what, you know, people are, are watching or into. Um, I oftentimes encourage my clients to share the porn that they're watching with their partners mm-hmm. or to share fantasies or dreams they've had about um, about these kinds of things with their partners. Um, you know, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Um, it's a fine line of not wanting to lose the client as a sex worker, but also always feeling an ethical obligation to um, just go a little above and beyond just being that whip-swinging dominatrix. <laughs> yeah, good for you. So I hear you wanting to help the client to share his fetishes with his wife so that he's not hiding that aspect of himself um, for the sustainability of the relationship. But let's let's take this a little bit more into non-monogamy. And so mm-hmm. have you had a client who um, you've helped speak to his wife about wanting to continue to see you or someone else outside the marriage? Um, well, I've had a few uh, similar experiences. Um, I have talked to clients about, um, so sometimes, again, I don't do full service work, and sometimes when you're working with couples that involves, uh, if they want to work in a more hands-on physical way, that involves crossing some physical boundaries that I don't do in my work. However, um, mm-hmm. the Bay Area is rife with sex workers who uh, don't have the same boundaries that I do. So oftentimes mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, referral, a lot of like inner community referral where one provider mm-hmm. will be working with, you know, someone and at some point will realize they are no longer the best person for that client and they'll mm-hmm. refer them to another provider. So I have referred um, escorts uh, who specialize in, um, you know, kink and BDSM and fetish play um, to a few of my male clients to work with um, uh, them and their wives in kind of a more intimate manner. Um, I have also been contacted um, by, uh, I would say at this point, a good dozen women um, who find my information through, you know, whatever means and are reaching out because they have, they know their husband or boyfriend has this desire. You know, maybe they stumbled on their internet history. Maybe they, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. However else it happened. Um, and they want, they really want to, you know, be a good partner and they want to learn about this kind of thing, but they have no experience with it whatsoever. So lots of times they'll reach out to me, um, to initiate it themselves, which I love. Um, I think that is a really uh, healthy way of, um, of going about something like that because uh, that way it gives the, and again, I know this model is very gendered, but just bear with me. It gives the woman in the relationship, um, it kind of puts the ball on her court and it gives her the power because she's the one arranging this uh, scenario or this session for her husband or boyfriend and or her. And so it, it oftentimes the more control the wife or girlfriend feels like she has, the more information she has, um, oftentimes uh, the more comfortable and successful the outcome ends up being. And, of course, that's just like a giant 
uh, overarching, you know, generalization comment on non-monogamy in general. It's <laughs> just like the more generally, yeah. the more information partners have about each other, the more, um, the better uh, the relationship, the healthier the relationship is and, and the more sustainable it is. Of course. And so I guess I want to kind of focus a little bit on the topic of when a, when a couple when one person has cheated, so they've either seen a sex worker or they've had an affair and they haven't told their partner about it, what kind of success can that couple have with shifting to an ethical non-monogamy relationship versus a couple who has not gone outside the relationship and then they consensually decide together to open it? Oh, that's such a big question. Um, (laughs) It is a big question. Let me, okay, so I'm going to rework it for my brain. Um, so I'm going to first pretend that I was approached by a, uh, a man who um, has always had non-monogamous desires that he has uh, pushed down his whole life, and they ended up just boiling up to the top, and he ended up uh, having an indiscretion. And he went out and, mm-hmm. you know, either saw a sex worker or had a one-night stand, um, and he feels terrible about it, and he hasn't. He hasn't told his wife. Um, So in that circumstance, if he hasn't told his wife or his girlfriend, um, oftentimes I will actually, and I I know this is an unpopular opinion with folks, but um, I am definitely of the opinion that uh, infidelities do not by any means um, indicate the end of a relationship, Um, whether Mm -hmm. that's, you know, the idea that like, oh, well, if he cheats on you, you know, you're obligated to end it. or if he cheats on you or vice versa, if she cheats on him, um, that, uh, that there's no way you'll ever get over that, that it'll take all this forgiveness. So um, I definitely mm-hmm. feel like there are, you know, most relationships, I won't say all, but most relationships, if you put the work in, can overcome an infidelity. Um, however, that being said, I also think there are lots of opportunities to, um, to withhold um, that someone has had an infidelity. And uh, an example I would give is, is this scenario. So if a, a gentleman, you know, had a one-night stand, um, feels horribly regretful about it, um, you know, loves his wife or girlfriend deeply, does not by any means want to end the relationship, but there was this infidelity, I will oftentimes caution him that he has either got to um, tell his wife or girlfriend about what happened or – he has to sit his wife or girlfriend down and have a conversation about uh, opening up the relationship without telling her about the infidelity. And usually that is judged by, um, you know, uh, how remorseful or genuinely remorseful and regretful the person is. Um, if, ha- if this has been a repetitive infidelity or if this really was just a one-off situation, um, especially if the infidelity was seeing a sex worker, um, I, I honestly don't believe that um, that disclosure uh, is necessary or can help the relationship um, if the person is genuinely committed to uh, initiating that conversation about opening the relationship. I don't think they need to disclose that they had an infidelity as long as they immediately um, carve out intentional time to have this conversation uh, and obviously mm-hmm. move forward ethically. 
Um, so I, mm-hmm. I do think there are circumstances where they don't need to disclose to their partners. Um, however, of mm-hmm. course, generally speaking, I do still believe that honesty is the best policy. So if this is a mm-hmm. pattern behavior um, and or if the, uh, you know, if it's a pattern behavior, obviously there's something going on that's not being met and you need to come clean about it. Um, and generally, if it's more of a long-standing pattern, that indicates a long-standing incompatibility, and that is not a, a really good indicator for a successful, savable relationship. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of situations. You know, there could be um, a woman could be married to a man who uh, is um, maybe in a car accident and in the middle of their marriage and becomes a paraplegic and no longer can uh, provide sexual intimacy for his partner. However, maybe the woman knows that um, telling her husband about other lovers would just completely destroy him emotionally. Um, So she gets her needs met on the side very discreetly and she comes home and because she's getting her needs met, she's able to be the best you know, partner possible to her paraplegic husband. And so there are, mm-hmm. uh, there's so many permutations, you know, like I feel like it's just like a, a choose your own adventure novel at the end of every mm-hmm. relationship. <laughs> right. And you have to take it on a case by case basis. Uh, really exactly. depends on uh, how open each member or participant is to non-monogamy. So exactly, what other and also, sorry, it's the lag. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just going to make a, a, a quick note um, that uh, also, you know, um, non-monogamy, oftentimes when we think about having these conversations with our, our partners or our spouses, you know, we can get really self-involved around them. And by self-involved, I mean, we can get really bent out of shape that we are the, are the deviant party in this, you know, in this twosome and that we're going to come to our partner and they're going to be, I call it sitting down and having the cancer talk. You know, oftentimes we sit down with our partners about new sexual desires and we present them as though we're about to tell them that we have leukemia, (laughs) you know, we're like, Mm -hmm. We're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I have this difficult thing to tell you, and I've been thinking about it forever, and I'm convinced you're going to leave me when you hear it. And we're kind of like setting the stage for them to be like, yeah, no, that was terrible. We're going to leave you. But um, if we present it in a very like not nonchalant, like we're not taking it seriously, but a very um, – you know, neutral way as though we are, you know, talking about wanting to get a new car, you know, we sit our partner down and we Mm -hmm. say, hey, like I have this thing and I really want to talk to you about it. And I'm really excited to share um, this new thing that I've discovered about myself with you. And I love you so much. And I can't wait to see where this goes. And then they they open up the conversation. That has so much more potential for a positive outcome than setting them up for that cancer talk. And the self-absorbed part, 
they probably your partner probably has something on their plate that they've been wanting to share with you that they've been nervous about and by opening up to them you can also then turn and say is there anything you want to share is there anything you've been thinking about trying and oftentimes there is and then you both get to have this mutual sharing and it's not just you know spotlight on you this entire time yeah, I love that. It's kind of like when you're talking to kids about something, the more charge you have in it, the more the kid will think that there's something bad or or wrong about it as opposed to just saying, oh, yeah, that's my other partner, and then they just go, oh, and then they run off and play again. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So let's talk about uh, other common questions that you get when you're doing open relationship coaching, maybe with your advice column uh, called I am Polly and so can you. (laughs) What are some of the other common questions you get? Sure. So a lot of questions that I get um, that I really, especially the ones that I really, well, okay, there are two, there are two kinds of questions that I get all the time. And one of them I love answering and the other one I hate answering. (laughs) And the one I, like just being honest, I'm a pretty transparent person. Um, The ones that I hate answering are those kinds of questions. And I'm sure, you know, as um, a professional in the same field, You've had these experiences as well where the answer to whatever question the person asked me, like the whole situation could be solved by me simply turning them and saying, talk to your partner about it. There are Mm -hmm. so many situations that really like simplistically could be solved by just disclosing exactly oftentimes verbatim in the way they disclose to me, disclosing that to their partner. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard for me as an advice columnist. I don't want to obviously have all these repetitive answers where my answers are sounding very similar to one another and I'm kind of giving the same advice. So I oftentimes have to skip over a lot of questions where I normally would just say, talk to your partner because I don't want my entire column to just be me answering talk to your partner talk to your partner talk to your partner <laughs> right. um, so uh so that's one of that's, that's the thing that I'm like ah gosh um but the other thing uh, that I get asked often is um are are questions about interpersonal relation navigating interpersonal relationships with your partner's other people um which are called mm-hmm. in the poly world they're called metamors so if my partner is seeing another person and, you know, we are both partners of this one individual, that other person is my metamorph, which honestly always mm-hmm. thinks, makes me think of Minotaur, like the big mythical creature <laughs> with the horns <laughs> that, like, chases you through a labyrinth or something. Uh, so it's kind of a weird, I, I don't like it, the word personally, but we'll use it. Um, but uh, a lot of people, particularly women, writing in about having male-identified, you know, masculine-identified partners and how do I get along with or how do I initiate a conversation with or, um, you know, combat jealousy that I have around my other, my partner's other person, um, who usually, Mm -hmm. though not always, is another female-identified individual. And um, I really love answering those questions because I have had – um, 
the very privileged and fortunate experience of having phenomenal metamors in my life. Um, the people that have a very family style of polyamory where um, everyone you know, knows who each other are. We all share space together. We go on vacations with one another. We celebrate each other's successes. Um, we're able to, you know, obviously share physical space, go to parties, go to dinners, et cetera, with one another. And, um, you know, that's both been a, a, a you know, a, a consequence of um, picking folks very intentionally who are already very experienced in polyamory mm -hmm. and also just sheer luck, mm -hmm. um, sheer compatibility mm -hmm. luck. And so, um, so I've had a lot of experience uh, over the past uh, almost decade of being, you know, ethically non-monogamous um, with navigating all sorts of different situations with my partners, other people. And um, I really have found that pulling from all of those varied experiences has proven really helpful um, for uh, folks who are encountering them for the first time. Wonderful. Thank you. So our time has flown by. We just have time for one more question. Um, can you tell me a little bit in like two minutes? <laughs> um, what's <laughs> I know. the biggest I'm so lesson? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. You've been great. Um, but what kind of, what's the biggest lesson or two um, that your coaching clients and students have taught you? Oh, gosh. Um <sighs> I'm going to think about this for just a moment and then I'll try and answer it really fast. Um, I guess it's been uh, something that happens when you're an advice columnist is you get, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you get put on this pedestal um, above other people in your demographics. Um, and it's because you are, are giving people advice um, and very similar thing with life coaches and, and educators, um, you're seen as an expert on a particular topic or topics. And that can, that kind of uh, perception, you can internalize that. And so something that I've been struggling with um, a lot in the past year, um, I had some very tumultuous relationship things happen um, in the past year. And it made me, it made me very self-conscious that I, um, that I wasn't fit to be giving people relationship advice um, when I was mm -hmm. uh, experiencing my own perceived failures um, in my relationships at home. And something that a lot of folks who follow my work um, and support my work have reiterated to me um, in the past year is how uh, precious my vulnerability and my transparency with my own uh, perceived failures and shortcomings and mistakes has been and has helped them um, helped them uh, be a little easier and kinder to themselves when they find themselves making mistakes or falling into, you know, potholes or what have you, um, because they can look at me and say, you know, she's really good at this thing and even she fucks up. So I have to be exactly. a lot kinder to myself. And, um, that really has helped me with those inner monologues, uh, those little running narratives we have in our heads that aren't very nice to us. Mm -hmm. um, it's helped mm -hmm. me be a lot nicer to myself um, about uh, still having confidence that I'm really good at what I do, even though um, even though I might be experiencing, you know, uh, 
little plateaus and perceived failures in my personal relationships that doesn't affect the fact that I'm still good at what I do and I still deserve to be to be doing what I do. And so that is yes. something that well, I you're, am you're human. eternally <laughs> grateful. Yeah, exactly. That I'm human. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yes. <laughs> that I am flawed. And that's and why we need – <laughs> You are. Yeah, and that's why we need community so much because we do need to see that, like, oh, you know, if we just look at Facebook, we think everyone's got it all figured out. But when we yep. start to talk to other people who are doing it, doing non-monogamy, we see that we're all – learning as we go none of us have a rule book and we really need each other so we're about out of time um, I want to give you a few minutes to tell people how they can reach you and I believe you have an offer for our listeners as well oh an offer I think I I, I missed that was I going to I'm like was I going to give them an offer I could offer them something <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah, you just have about three minutes, so go ahead and tell people how they can reach you about your advice column and anything else you want to um, share about your work. Sure. So, um, again, my name is Andre Shakti. It's spelled A-N-D-R-E. My last name is S-H-A-K-T-I. Um, you can Google me, and I come up pretty much anywhere. I will caution you that if you do Google me, um, please don't do it on your work computer because I am a pornographer and my <laughs> genitals will be on your work computer <laughs> if you do that. So be careful where you look me up. Um, but you can find me on Facebook as Andre Shakti. You can find me on Twitter um, at Andre Shakti. Um, I'm not cool enough to have a Snapchat or an Instagram or a Tumblr. Um, and my advice column um, is impoly.net, and you can uh, visit the column. Um, it's, you know, it's free. There's no subscription involved. You can read all of the archives, and you can submit your own questions through the website as well. And then finally, um, in order, because I am a journalist and an activist um, by trade, uh, obviously I'm not really getting compensated for the advice column. It's more of a labor of love. So I have an accompanying uh, Patreon account um, that uh, supports financially the work that I do around non-monogamy. And that Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash impoly. Great. Awesome. Okay. And do you have a quick offer that you'd like to make or do you want to skip that for now? Um, I'm like, I'm just like a quick offer. I'm like, my offers are usually like sexual propositions. I don't know if I want to sexually proposition your <laughs> radio audience, um, unless they want to pay me for it. But, um, no, I mean, I would just encourage folks to, um, to submit questions. I answer two questions every week. So there's a, there's a high chance that you will see your question, uh, being answered, you know, within a week or two of you submitting it. And, um, uh, you know what? I will make a special offer. Um, if folks uh, want to contact me and reference this podcast, um, I will give you a uh, 50% off um, an hour-long private non-monogamy consultation. So um, if you want Perfect. to reference this podcast, then I'd be more than happy. I do uh, Skype and phone consults. And um, you can reach me through uh, iampoly.net directly to arrange that and um, reference this podcast and get 50% off the first 60-minute consult. Fabulous. Okay, well, we are out of time, and I want to thank you so much. You've been an absolute delight to speak with. I really appreciate you being you on the too. show. You too. And keep up, keep up the great work. 
Thank you. You as well. I had a lot of fun. Okay, good. Bye-bye. Bye.